Hello, my friends. How you doing? This is Aaron Maurer. Oh my gosh, guys, this episode is epic. I'm telling you, I get a chance to speak with perhaps one of the smartest people I think I've ever come in contact with. She is simply phenomenal. We're going to cover the topic of artificial intelligence, but don't let that turn you away if you feel like you don't know enough about it or it doesn't apply because we're talking about much grander issues. This whole concept about being able to constantly think about our current perceptions, our current mindsets, and our current ways of thinking, and what do we need to do not just for ourselves, but for our students as lifelong learners to make sure that we're doing everything in our power for ourselves and our students to be ready for what is going to be in the near future for their lives and the things that are going to impact them. And artificial intelligence is just one of many things that we're going to talk about in this episode. Guys, there are so many phenomenal conversations in this. Like I, I went through and clearly listened to it time and time again. Like it's just, it's so good. I've been sitting on this one so excited to get this out to the airwaves so i hope that uh you enjoy as much as i do and if you do please let us know reach out retweet text us message email let us know what your thoughts are about these conversations i would love to hear from you based on what you hear in this episode as always my friends make sure you check out the links in the show notes this episode has a ton of links and videos to anything that we talk about or discuss in terms of authors and books and videos and robots and ai i have linked all of it down in the show notes for you to explore further so without further ado enjoy this episode with michelle zimmerman Woke up at six o'clock in the morning, chilling with coffee mugs, me and coffee chugs, talking education all across the nation, pushing boundaries, thinking innovation. Aaron Mauer, outside the box thinker, here to teach each and every teacher how to tinker. Living on the edge of chaos, born insane. Listening to coffee chugs like caffeine for the brain. One of the top teachers in Iowa, word is born. Here to show the world that there's more here than corn. Chaos. Here we go. Hello, everyone. How you doing? This is Coffee Chug Bucks, and we are here with another amazing episode of Living on the Edge of Chaos podcast. I am here with a guest who um, we were just talking before we hit record. I've been, I've been pestering to get her on my show, but she's just so busy doing a million things. And of course, as any educator knows, also teaching, which is a million things just in and of itself, as well as all the other amazing things that, that she's doing. And so uh, we want to dive, dive right into the conversation here. And we'll start off by Michelle having you introduce um, yourself, who you are, what you do, and, and, and all that good stuff. And then we'll dive into the fun. So I'm Michelle Zimmerman. I'm from the Seattle, Washington area, and I work at Renton Prep Christian School. Um, I've been doing research in education technology starting when I was in graduate school at University of Washington and bringing that research into practice. And a lot of that works with older kids teaching younger kids and what happens when that older kid takes the role of a teacher. And that's fascinating because when you see them as students, it's so easy for them to say, oh, why didn't the teacher do it this way? Or how come this didn't happen? But as soon as they take on that role themselves, then they go, wait, this is so much harder. <laughs> or they'll ask questions that they never thought of asking when they were just a student because they see that the person they're teaching isn't necessarily responding in the way they expected. And especially when you bring technology into that mix, 
works with that is like you're living on the edge of chaos. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I know just because um, we've been able to cross paths at some conferences in the past here and there, and and I know as, as you're talking about students teaching um, younger students and just teaching in general, I know I feel like everywhere where I go, you tend to have a, a, a posse of students along with you. You're, yes. you're, you're, you're one of those educators where I think the majority of educators obviously go to conferences to learn, but they also go because it is a nice little break in the action, especially when you hit that January, February mode, and it's good to kind of <laughs> be with other adults. And, and then here you are, and you've been really good. Um, you've, you've been not really good. That's, that's a terrible grammar. You've been a great advocate for students to share their learning and to be treated and respected as professionals as, as they should. And so let's maybe start with that, since you were talking about that with students, like, you're, you're, you're modeling what, you, what you're researching and digging into. And so what have you found to be some value in that, whether it's at conferences or just maybe just sharing and helping other kids and people in general? Because I think it's, it's something that I think a lot of people um, want to do. And I think you mm-hmm. see small glimpses of it in schools where you maybe have a fifth grader teach a second grader here and there. Um, but it's not as, as much as maybe like we would all like. And so um, – I know you do a lot of that because I follow your journey online. I've seen you. So what have been some of the big like aha moments or, 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 or things that are really important with that journey that, that teachers need to be thinking about? Well, some of it came from just listening to kids in the first place. I started out with my mom um, watching her teach early childhood. She's taught everything from early childhood through special ed through 10th grade and everything in between, combination classes, um, people with behavior challenges, kids who are going way above their grade level norm. And so I watched how she would combine different things that they were doing with other grade levels, other students, and the impact that that had. So it essentially was like me being an apprentice or a mentor that she was mentoring me. Um, And it really intrigued me, and I knew that's what I wanted to start researching because I saw things going on that I couldn't really explain or understand but started seeing patterns. And so when I got more into research at University of Washington, they really have a strong social justice focus. And part of that is listening to the voices of the people that you are trying to understand as opposed to just observing and assuming that your perspective will help answer those questions because you can have different types of biases or um, perspectives that you're entirely missing the meaning behind what someone else is doing or thinking or approaching. So that intersection really made a lot of sense. And then that changed into looking at research from the perspective of Um, participatory action research. And that means that you're not just observing, but you're participating in this experience and trying to understand what's going on. And then when you're looking at culturally sensitive research models, it's giving voice to the person, again, that you're trying to understand. So it only makes sense to say, if I want to understand what's going on in these kids' lives and how I can help best reach them, I need to hear a lot from them. And if one of the things I want to do is help other educators and researchers and industry know, instead of me just reporting back for them, it makes more sense to have them be the ones to speak for themselves because it sets power and agency and ownership with them. The other benefit with that is they not only practice with public speaking, but they start understanding the complexities of talking to different audiences and how talking to their peers may be very different than talking to a teacher, may be different than talking to a developer who's working on a program. And for that, it gives them practice with some of those skills we want them to have in knowing that whatever global population they'll be working with, whatever device they're using to connect them, they will have practice in speaking 
through multiple different types of audiences. That gives them a sense of purpose in that they want to know that they're being heard and that their voice has value, as you mentioned, but you can miss an opportunity if you don't know how to communicate effectively. And so before they can communicate effectively, they have to know what they're doing, why they're doing it, what's the purpose, and what are some of the goals and challenges their audience has. So in helping them prepare for these things, I have them actually read through things like the ISTE standards for students and understand what they mean, why were standards created in the first place, and why do you think adults thought these types of skills would help them in the future. Then from there, what are things that you can do that demonstrate you're capable of doing these things? And if you want a grown-up to understand that and make it fun, what kinds of things would you want them to know? Mm-hmm. So those kind of things became really interesting because once they did that, they started becoming better teachers with the little buddies that they're working with also. Yeah, and I find that so fascinating as you're talking. It's I did something on a much granular scale, but it, it was it was eye-opening for me. Um, I've always been a huge advocate of student voice, and I think mm-hmm. everybody says they are, um, and not to like downplay anybody who says that, but I think there's there's way more to it than what we give credit to, right? Um, and so it, it was interesting. We were doing a, a model where I had a group of kids who were just phenomenal. Uh, we we had built some crazy robots and coding, and we were we got asked to teach coding to some some students in a refugee camp, and yeah. they were like. You know, in our school, they're so comfortable teaching because they had all the tools at their disposal, you know, and then like, well, we're, we're going to go teach these kids, but they don't have what you have. Well, then how am I, you know, and like, mm-hmm. there's this whole kind of like the question we did, I kept coming back to him is like, do you really know what you think you know? Like, and I'm not yeah. knocking you, but we have to be able to transcend cultural barrier, maybe some language barrier, and then obviously accessibility of technology. So you can't tell them to go turn on their device and go here because they don't have that. Right. But it doesn't mean that they can't understand the principles of what you're trying to teach. Absolutely. And so I saw this huge shift in my own teaching practices in that moment. Like, this is really forcing kids to prove to themselves it wasn't even about proving it to me but to themselves do i actually truly understand what i think i understand and i think there, there's, a, there's a real value Absolutely. in that moment for them and that reflective component when you ask them to think through what were the things that you noticed that didn't match your original perceptions or what are things that you would do differently or what would you feel like if you were in that situation you didn't have the access to just open something up and plug it in then that reflective component just makes it even deeper and helps them see that process in a different way yeah yeah absolutely you know and it's probably a, a terrible segue but as we think about student voice and we think about technology or the lack of um, the lack of accessibility to it mm-hmm. in some places uh, it doesn't just have to be a refugee camp it's all over um, right. anywhere we can go you know you, you recently wrote a book on, on teaching AI and not that people can see it, but I'm holding it up. Um, it's, it's one of my favorite, honestly, education reads I've read here the last couple of years. And oh, um, you. as you bridge into that, I mean, we talk about student voice and, you know, mm-hmm. here I am talking about a, a Skype call and you've dived into AI and things like that. How did you find that path to AI? Um, and the reason that I ask is like your book itself read so smoothly and I think when we think in education around artificial intelligence when I say that or people in general bring it up in conversation mm-hmm. it terrifies the oh, average person let alone terrified educator. me too <laughs> yeah um, but your book didn't feel that way and I didn't feel dumb reading it um, I went into it thinking I knew some stuff but I mean I I know enough to be able to hold a conversation but not enough to say like I, I quite understand it but it, it just felt like like 
duh like it, and i mean that in a good way like i was like oh <laughs> i can do this like oh this is this works and this is you know we're we're doing a lot of these things like how did you get to yeah. that path and then you know what is what what's some of that work been like not just for you but maybe like for your students so i know that was a long-winded yeah. kind of three-pronged <laughs> question so you can tackle it however you want it sure. um but um I, I, it, it's an interesting thing you're talking technology and student voice and we've got this ai on the frontier too happening in our, in our society well, it does go back to what we were talking about earlier, and it actually absolutely matches as a segue because if that core is, if these kids will be working in fields that will use different types of technology, their voice is important as we're developing and as we're helping train them for careers that may not exist yet. And if that's the case, while I'm researching it, I need to understand what are they thinking about it, what do they know, and what do they wish other people would know. So as I approached it, I knew nothing about AI other than the title, and my perception was essentially what I saw in science fiction and the occasional article that came across talking about jobs will be lost. So from the time I started looking into it and got a little panicked when I saw an article that said, within 20 years, 40% of the jobs will be replaced by some type of machine, and there's going to be huge unemployment. And so that went to my like teacher researcher brain going, <laughs> okay, if I'm preparing my kids, I don't know what these careers will be yet. What do I need to do to start getting them to think? And what do I need to know? Because then there's a responsibility on me as soon as I have this information that if I know something could possibly exist and I don't do anything about it, then what is that saying for me constantly learning as an educator and helping sure. guide them? Um, but that's a scary space because there is not a lot out there that's directed for teachers to say, here's what you can do to help prepare them. And so I just started talking to the kids and saying, okay, here's this article I read. What do you think about it? And then I got their opinions and some of them were like, oh, that's never going to happen. Some got panicked right away. And I said, well, what are some of the kinds of careers you imagine might be able to be replaced by a machine? And so they said some of them that they knew like kiosks, car rental places, things that the airport baggage check-in, things like that. And then one of the boys said, well, there's absolutely no way any type of doctor or medical position can be replaced by a robot because nothing can be as precise as a human hand to do a surgery. So I pulled up the Da Vinci arm robot and it was suturing <laughs> a grape and grape skin back together. And he's like, what? Okay, that's it. I don't even know what to say anymore. And I said, that's fine. It's fine to be at a place where you don't know what to say anymore. But I'm challenging you with this, with this because if we don't question our own assumptions about the way things are now or the way they'll always be, that's no different than you're talking about people who are older and saying, well, you can't do this with gaming or esports or in the classroom. Your mindset is no different. It's just with different words. Uh -huh. So I challenged them on that because even when I brought in Minecraft in VR for them to try, there are a couple kids who were really good at Minecraft and they're like, I like the old way better. And if you took a transcript... <laughs> You would think they were somewhere like their 80s. Yeah, and yeah. I said, so why? And he's like, well, I could do the other way faster, which speaks to you're not just a digital native. And it's a matter of what you're used to and the speed of processing with, processing with which you have done something. And then you try something new. And it's different, whether it's motor or processing or cognitive load. And that's human nature. So it started getting me thinking about this thing like, okay, if technology keeps adapting, if they're in that same mindset, they're not just this digital native who automatically adapts to things. How do I start pushing them on their thinking and figuring out what skills they will have to bring regardless of what technology exists? Mm -hmm. So that got me on the track of trying to find out what is AI? What are people doing? How are they using it? How can 
value that doctors add and lawyers add to things that machines can't and what's that balance. So I talked to some of the kids who were interested in going into law and going into the medical field. And then we reached out because I started building um, LinkedIn connections with people across different conferences. I searched to see anyone I could find in those fields and started writing them and say, are you using anything with AI? Do you know anything about this area? And there were some amazing people who said, yeah, I'm so happy to help kids in these groups find out more, think more. And that got me looking into cognitive systems. I'm like, wait, what's the difference between cognitive systems and AI? Is it the same thing? Is it different? <laughs> now I'm seeing stuff on machine learning. What is this? What is the definition? Right. Um, so I ended up speaking with one of my students at um, a STEM summit. It's with in conjunction with Macmillan and Scientific American. And we presented on this, what we were finding at the time, since she went to go into the medical field and said, here's what we're finding. These are some things that are going to be really important for humans in terms of ethics, because we know ethics is important in the medical field. And as of now, there's not a machine that can make those types of decisions. We know things with human storytelling and comfort and empathy are things that humans will add to this. Um, and then I still brought up this point of and within the next however many years, this many jobs will be gone. And I'm so grateful for someone in the audience who came up afterwards and said, um, I want to challenge you on that statement. I don't know that that's actually the way you think it is. And he pointed me to some other resources and I looked more into that. So that turned into several other sessions that I did at different conferences. And that's how ISTE found me and said, we'd like you to write this book. So that set me on a whole trajectory of saying, <laughs> what do I do? How do I define this? What do I find out for what I don't even know yet? And then challenge all the assumptions I had. So from that point in October to the next year, my impressions and perspectives on AI and AI and education changed drastically. Um, so that became the foundation of why I took the approach that I did, because I knew it was much more than just how do you teach a teacher to teach a kid how to create something with AI or coding. And because it's ultimately machines interacting with humans and what makes us unique, what are the things we can lean into that machines will do far better than us? And before we even get to that point, how do we know who we are as a people and what we want our future to become? And that's more of like a civics type question of right. how you live and work in a society. Yeah, no. It's, there was it, my long-winded no, answer. No, no, it was great. Yeah, because, you know, as you're talking, it, it makes me think about this this whole idea, whether we're adults or we're students, and just the whole yeah. concept about, about learning in general and, like, you know, always coming back to this question of why. And as you went down this road, you know, um, like your, 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 your lack of understanding of AI. Absolutely. That's where fear and that's where misinformation and that's a whole conversation for the state of society now with misinformation and all that stuff, which Absolutely. we don't need to get into that one for today. But <laughs> but, it, but it feeds into this. Like once you start to dive into the material and, and, and learn and understand what's going on, a lot of those fears, a lot of that misinformation does fall to the wayside. But, you know, we're, we're so quick to just to take right. a little soundbite here. Um, and that's true with anything. You know, it's funny as you were talking about the lack of jobs. I was um, I was at, at an artificial intelligence, like, ideation summit for, uh, yeah. for, for Pitsco, and we were just brainstorming ideas. And we had people from the business world and education world and yada, 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 and we had to do some prep. And I read the book just prior um, to that summit. Um, called 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. The author's name, I don't know how to pronounce it, so I, I'll just put the link in the show notes. I'll just be respectful of the name and I even try to attempt to pronounce it because it would 
not be right. Um, but he had a really interesting passage in there on artificial intelligence. He has a whole chapter on it was one of the lessons talking about like unmanned drones and talking about how the the, the Air Force, like one unmanned drone, it's going to lead to this just job shortage, right? And we're not going to need any more pilots. We're going to have all these unmanned drones and planes and we don't need humans. But what he was diving into was for one unmanned drone, it requires 30 people to fly Absolutely. it. And then it takes another on average, 80 other people to like process the data that it's, mm-hmm. you know, and is so this where we needed Different just a pilot, drones. you know, and there's obviously more than one person when we had yeah. flight drones, but this idea, like there's a hundred, you know, on average, say 110 people that are needed now in new jobs and careers mm-hmm. Absolutely. for this one way of where we used to have yes. to have fighter pilots and now we don't have to. And so it's, it, it's really fascinating. Cause I was like the same thing. I used to tell people like, Oh, I don't know. Yeah. I don't, I don't I know. You guys are all going to be unemployed. I don't know what you're going to do. And then I dive into <laughs> it. I'm like, no, it's, it's going to create all these opportunities. Um, it's something that every person says at every single keynote. So I hate saying it, but I'm going to say it myself is like, we're preparing kids for the future. We don't know exist. And right. everyone loves to, to dive on that. But it, it, there, there is a lot of truth to that. Like, okay, so we may not have pilots, but we're going to need something else. And, it's- well, and I'd also argue in mental health scenarios too, because there's research that talks about the stress on drone pilots when you are yes. realizing that you're not actually on the ground, you're not physically seeing the impact, but you know it's more than just a video game, that it creates a different kind of mental situation and cognitive dissonance than for people who are on the ground. And for people, when you come back to your families, there's this perception of, well, you weren't at war, you didn't have anything stressful, you were playing a video game. And that creates its own type of stress and isolation in a way that humans weren't used to experiencing like when they're on the ground or in the air with band of brothers no yeah yeah i and i think i i came across that like triggers memories now i think i read across something like that because like now you can actually you quote unquote go into the office right and yeah. you could actually wipe out a village yeah. or whatever and then you get in your car and now you have to go be dad at you know t-ball like how do you even Absolutely. Not that it's taking away from people who actually had to go over into war in the battlefield, right. but there's this you can't turn that off and on, and so right. And that's and not just for don't for understand yeah. that either because it's like what you didn't go through anything traumatic, <laughs> sure. and so there's going to need to be a whole new division of psychology that understands how that works. And I imagine that that piece will actually be really important in a lot of different domains, not just in that domain, because as things become more digital, then it's going to be a a level of psychology that's going to need to start understanding a level of legal, because legal lags so far behind technology that even if people say, wait a minute, we need to get these things in, in order and laws for them, if precedent isn't set, you can't even police that and do something to help support or protect in that area. So these will create a whole slew of other types of jobs. But if we can get kids to start thinking about those implications early on, and that may trigger an interest in some of these different fields, or I want to help in this way, or this is the type of thing that I see myself doing, where it is very human, um, and machines will take different types of jobs. But that means we definitely need to prepare them with those kinds of mindsets and skills to quickly adapt to things, to be able to learn, unlearn, relearn, as that's said a lot now too. And then also that piece of 
really constantly questioning our own assumptions and beliefs because if we just assume, well, this person was in an office, it's not going to impact them or this person is not really working at some other area, but they should be doing something else as opposed to seeing the actual impacts these things are happening. It requires a different perspective and questioning. And that I feel goes in with the accessibility, with bias, with um, stereotype threat and all those different areas. So that, Preparing them for things that we don't know exist will really require a lot of those types of skill sets. And I think that's a lot of the area that education right now is not prepared for, even though it's going more towards social and emotional learning. There's still a huge gap in knowing how to connect that or help kids transfer that skill over. Yeah, and then I think it, it speaks to this much bigger issue that social emotional. I mean, we see this popping up more and more in our news feeds and, and blogs and right. I think, which is important because I think for the longest time there's been so much focus and pressure on, on, on the academic, ac- academia side of things. And there's nothing wrong with making sure we have, you know, people that can think right. and operate on their own, but we've kind of neglected the social emotional thing. Cause it's, it's, it's murky, it's muddy. Like there's no black and white. I can't, I can't Hard to assess something yeah, like that. You know, so I can't go, go buy an online software system that magically makes kids right. socially happy. You know I mean? Like it just doesn't work that way, but now there's this, there's this increasing need. We're starting to see now like, Holy cow, we need more of this than ever before. But there's right. this other bigger realm I see outside of it as well as like, not just the mental well being to, like, are you comfortable in your own skin? And, and But right. now, preparing for who do you want to be as a human? What are your contributions right. going to be to society? And so it's not even, as you're building that social emotional, it, it kind of goes back to this AI or these other conversations, Absolutely. right? Of like, if you're not... If you're not careful, if we're not careful, we'll do, we can just continue to be a product. And those voices, those 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 seats at the table that we need every kid to be at, could be lost if we don't do our job to help prepare Absolutely. them to demand a seat at the table. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's something that's that so goes, important. Absolutely, that goes right back to why the kids. Why do I? Actually, the entire reason I even go to conferences is to open doors so they get a chance to speak because I know that they don't have the power on their own yet in many cases to say, hey, I'm here. I'm talking to a group of adults. So the times that I'm like, I can't do one more speaking engagement, I'm like, okay, is it worth (laughs) it if it gives them a chance to speak, to know that they have a chance for that and to start getting them on that pathway, which is also why I included their voices in this book and one to make sure that people from around the world were heard also. So I systematically talk to people from all different areas of the globe, Um, thankfully connecting with them a lot through the Global Educator Exchange through Microsoft Educator Community and being able to hear voices in different perspectives where I had biased assumptions of, well, Japan must be much farther ahead in AI than we are because I would see articles come out about Japan. So when I talked to some teachers in that area and when I visit in Japan, I would hear them say things like, well, the United States is much farther ahead in AI than we are. And I started realizing as I talked to people around the world that there's this perception that everyone else is farther advanced than they are. And yet people have the same struggles and questions in various different school or classroom settings. But this perception that someone else has it figured out. 
Yeah, and I think that 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 is fascinating. I know. I think uh, just in a, in a previous conversation, we were just talking about the old, like the ideals of, of first, like first legally get stuff, and one of, the, of yeah. the things we push there, you know, is is this cooperation. You know, we, we we're working together, like we're not, you know, competing. And I think we see a lot of that in education. Obviously, we see a lot of that in society, where it's like, right. you know, we all think someone has the 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 upper hand because we keep mm-hmm. everything under a lock and key, as opposed to how do we work collectively together um, to find the right answers or at least to find the pathways to discover what's right and what's moral right. and ethical and all that good stuff. So I think it, it leads to, you know, this, this kind of bigger conversation. Um, Which also got me on uh, something that I never thought I would get interested in through this conversation is my mindset as a teacher and then in research is I want to get these ideas out. I want to share it with people and collaborate and build on And then when I started realizing that the phrase bad actors is coming in, meaning that not everyone has the purpose of making the world better through technology, which I know, but then there's this piece of me that says, well, if I can help contribute to the positive, that there are people who will use any means or any hooks to try and get what they need to help advance something for the negative. And that's, that is a positive in some of the science fiction films or books or um, articles, because it does give you this dichotomy of the exact same technology can be used for incredible, powerful things in a good way or negative things in a, in other ways. So that's one reason I pulled a couple of those films in there, like big hero six or Wally, because it shows you that it's not the technology that's inherently bad. It's what someone chooses to do with it. And in the movie Big Hero 6, when you see this great creation he comes up with for positive, the exact same can be collaborated with and shared with someone else and taken for mass destruction. So I'd say as educators, not just for our own knowledge, but for helping prepare our students, that it's trying to be cautious at the same time as saying we want to share these ideas but how do we find the resources to help us determine which you can't always but to help us determine where to steer away from where to um not necessarily just dive in head first yeah and i and it's 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 interesting you say that because i remember i was i was challenging an educator i don't know where i I was sitting with some educators and we were talking about ai and technology and just all the stuff that Mm -hmm. keeps trying to be pumped into the classroom and I don't know if it was who, what country it was. I don't think it, I don't think it was in America yet um, in terms of at least these, these beta tests, but I'm sure it'll be here. Maybe it's already here now where there's these, I'm going to call it an AI system. Maybe that's not completely accurate, but the idea being that there is these systems you can install in your classroom and it monitors kids, um, their right. eyes and their body movement. And it can then give you these reports, whether they're paying yes. attention or, um, you know, and, and I remember sitting around this table and, these educators like that would be amazing. Like if kids knew they were constantly being monitored, like maybe they would do their work. And of course in my head, I'm like, but maybe if we think about engagement <laughs> in the classroom, but you have to be careful. Yeah. Okay, I don't know these people, um, right. but I did flip it on him and I said, okay, so majority of you at this table are, are proponents of this. Like you think that'd be a good behavior modification system. You know, you, you would like that. And they're like, yeah, it make it would make my job easier. I'm like, okay, so then what if we flip that and your administrator use that on you and you and the knowing. machines <laughs> monitored you all day long on your prep and the passing periods and they took note of how many times you were quote unquote engaged, not engaged, mm-hmm. using your class time, your prep time effectively before and after mm-hmm. school, when you walked into the class and that kind of thing. They're like, Well, 
I'm a professional. And I'm prof- yeah, it. yeah, and you know, I'm a professional. They should. I'm supposed to, so it's okay to uh-huh. do this on kids, which to me seems even more frightening that you're willing to allow this to happen to kids than you right. yourself as a professional who should have the capacity to understand what's happening. And so there's this really interesting catch 22 and not that they're and wrong even, and not, I, I'm not judging these people, but it was just yeah. a, you know, there's just think about, cause it's easy to not think about the implications of something where you see possible positive impact. Yes. But even think deeper about that and say, well, whoever programmed whatever it's looking for is assuming that averted eye contact means they're not paying attention. There are some absolutely brilliant kids who look away because they're picturing the thing that they're looking at as they're thinking about it. And for them to be able to picture what they're talking about, they need to imagine like a TV screen or a blank space. So if that system was built by someone who assumes that this behavior means something, then it could erroneously attach that to the kid and then track them in a system where it assumes that they're deviant behavior or off task when they could be well more on task than someone who's smiling and nodding at you. Right, right completely blank or somewhere else and 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 even cultural norms you could take it to the bigger spect of just Absolutely. there are there are certain cultures that you know american culture operates differently than others i remember mm-hmm. i was i was preparing to go to dubai and i, I was going to do some teaching and i remember because i was like a white male there was some very there were certain things that i was told like you, you just can't do like it's not allowed mm-hmm. and i'm just like Cause I was like, cause they knew me. I'm like, man, I'm all about like high five in and fist yeah. bumps. They're like, you can't do that to the female. That's just not a, it's not part right. of the culture. You know? And I'm just like, thank God someone told me, but now I think about this AI. And so, you, you know, say you have someone who doesn't view everyone as equal. You could write algorithms that oh, can absolutely. completely manifest itself and push people. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. And not to go down this, this warped tunnel of negativity, but I think it comes back but to it's this. important. Yes. Because yes. that goes back to the question of, I feel like in too many situations, people are saying, oh, teachers shouldn't be terrified. This is good. And I said early on in the first part of this conversation, it is terrifying and I am too. And that's one reason I'm in this space because it can be used for really powerful negative things. I mean, people already are. There are things with social credits. Looking at the Black Mirror series, some of those things seem far-fetched, but they're actually in existence now. And that idea that technology can alter human behavior, I think is really compelling. I don't remember the name of the episode, but it's essentially um, as if it's like a contact lens that's recording everything that you're seeing and doing, and mm. it can be replayed with the yes. hope that these people will be honest, they won't have infidelity, things like that will be like removed from human behavior in society because it can always be watched. But what the episode clearly showed is that human behavior didn't change. The way that they tried to get around or through loopholes of those things did, which means the technology isn't actually mediating the human behavior. It's causing a new level of complexity. And that's why, again, I took the approach in this book to say, who are we as people first? How do you address that? Because whoever you are is ultimately going to be amplified by whatever the technology ends up being in whatever time in the future. Yeah. And I think it's important, I mean, even to go back to your book that, you know, for someone listening in and maybe this is their first time hearing conversation on AI and they're probably thinking, oh, my Lord, um, it's not to be... (laughs) terrifying but it's something that we need to like we can't we can't ignore either i think one of the things to highlight like 
in your book, and I think people do need to read it, is you provide so many resources and lessons and articles and things for for an educator to begin to wrap their head around and start to have some conversations and maybe just some small application stuff in the classroom to just start the process, you know, and Right. You know, not that we have to go dive right into the ethical <laughs> dilemma of, of unmanned drones, you right. know, with, with elementary kids. But you have, you know, like the Pixar in the box stuff. And I know there's, I have a whole entire like Evernote page full of like all the links and resources. It's just like it's, there's so many good things. So I think there's, there, there's a lot of good positive entry points for people, Absolutely. for educators and for students to begin to navigate these waters and hold, have conversations around that. Um it can lead to some very deep, powerful conversations, but it's also not ones that in your first rodeo is also going to be terrifying, you know? Um, right. <laughs> and so it's, it's, you, you, you can find those, those starting points, which I think is, is, is really important. And the reason why it's important to be engaged in this is because your students will be engaged in these technologies, whether they realize it or not. And you're probably using technologies that are powered by machine learning and AI, whether you realize it or not. And to have an awareness of how you can use those to your benefit and to the benefit of other people, that can be really good as opposed to just blindly going, oh, well, I'm using this app or this device or this thing is helping me get from one place to another. But knowing it and then maximizing on it and then bringing in the things that make you uniquely human, bringing in the storytelling and the culture and the identity pieces while using the support of these tools can really bring dynamic results. Yeah, and I think you're spot on. I, I, I do, I've been doing this presentation now to superintendents and administrators in our state. We just passed computer science standards um, and trying to get them to understand like the importance of it. Like It can't just be one more thing. This is not right. just a fad. We have to weave it in into all the other layers of a school yes. day because um, just one not more thing tacked class. in it isn't going to work. But right. I share with them like simple things. Like you know, We could take the idea of Uber. Like Uber's job, like they're not after the new taxi service. They're after a whole entire navigation system for driverless vehicles. And that is where the billion trillion dollar industry is with semis and cargo and moving, you know, but they're using this, they're gathering so much data. Like it's right, wrong, or indifferent. Like, this right. is computer science, or I joke joke about like 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 the the robo vacuums in your house, and I'm like, are mm-hmm. you are you aware that that information they're getting blueprints of your house? And isn't it amazing the ads in your social media now are couches and chairs and things that just happen to be the perfect size <laughs> for your space? Like these things are not just out of the blue. Like people are navigating right. these things. You need to be aware of it, not terrified of it, but you need to understand right. what's going on. And we need to educate people so we can make good decisions with this. You know, it, it reminds me of, of Spider-Man, you know, what with, with great yes. power comes great responsibility. The, and, uh, you know, it's just, um, here we are. And so we, we can't shy away from it anymore. I agree. So, I'll be respectful of your time here. I could sit here and chit chat with you all day long on this topic. Um, you know, are, are there any other final thoughts or ideas as, as we talk about whether it's your book or technology or student voice? We've, we've kind of talked about a lot of different things um, yeah. that we didn't cover that you want to make sure you have a chance to speak on before we kind of let everybody know um, where they, 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 they can get a hold of you. I would say that. I think it's important regardless of what grade level you teach, whether you're in early childhood, 
um, specialist, someone who goes up through high school, even if you say, well, I'm an art teacher that has nothing to do with me, it actually does because there's so many ways that you can use these tools or that collaborative teams will need your students to have these really detailed art skills to be part of someone who can help develop things in the future. So regardless of what field you're in, it's worth engaging in and understanding more about it, even if it's just for general knowledge. And then and secondly, I would say that after talking to the man who created what runs Siri, uh, Stephen Wolfram, he said a statement that probably shocked some educators in the audience that we should stop teaching kids to code. And I know he didn't mean just quit teaching coding, but what he meant is if we're only teaching it in a rote memorization pattern of you memorize this, you create this thing that we already expected you to create so it matches it, and then you turn it in as an assignment, that's not building any different skills than having someone memorize a date in history and repeat it on a test. It's not getting them to think critically about computational thinking or design thinking or helping them become people who are working in the messy spaces or like I love the title so much on the edge of chaos. <laughs> we need kids who are resilient to the point that they can jump into these messy spaces, identify problems and figure out how to solve it as opposed to giving um, a, an excuse of I can't do this because someone didn't tell me the step-by-step process. Right. And I think that part is the most important part to think of right now of how to prepare kids for the future because when they have the skills to do that, they're not going to crumble and fall apart because it gets hard. They're going to know that this is a normal process and I'm going to run into brick walls or whatever kind of walls and I'm going to figure out a way to either get around it through it or come up with a different solution. Um, I have not read the book yet, but um, one of our computer science teachers, Chris Nearman, told me about a book called Anti-Fragile and I loved the title because you think about we don't want our kids to be fragile we want them to be strong, but it's not just about strength. It's the agility to move around and through things, to have the ability to to be anti of what fragile is. Right. So I'm excited to see more about how that plays out and how I can start bringing that into the classroom as well to help them realize that there's this mindset, not just not just thinking about it in terms of growth mindset, but how do we help you become someone who, when everything's pushing against you or things look like they're falling apart, that you're resilient in that type of way as well. I love it. I love it. And I think those are some really powerful ideas for us to to process on and kind of wrap up this conversation. I think there's there's so much to that. And um, I don't know if I saw that on, on Twitter or something, but I think I've seen that quote from, from Wolfram about the idea of to stop mm-hmm. the teacher coding. And I had a podcast. I'll link in the show notes so I won't spend regurgitate the whole podcast but I, I interviewed there was a guy who wrote a piece on slate he's a programmer talking about mm-hmm. i will not teach my kids to code and he is a programmer and, and it's the same kind of com- conversation there and it was really really fascinating to, to you know to talk to him about someone who actually is not just me some tall bald nerdy guy who likes to code and build robots <laughs> but it's a fun little hobby but someone who does it for a living and just that idea of you know it's it's not about the coding it's about the thinking that goes behind it and right you know they spend most of their time on whiteboards having conversations and talking about how they're going to solve the problem. And, you know, this idea of, he's like, we rarely write new code. We, we pull stuff from the internet from here and here and here once we know what we want to do. And so he's like, anybody can learn to code like when needed. And so I think there's, mm-hmm. you're, 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 we're onto something. And I think uh, I was writing down some notes and it's like, is we have all these new frontiers in education and that's a right. new necessary for society. We can't repeat how we taught it before, you know, and right. that idea of this regurgitation isn't, isn't going to sell. 
So, right. well, I'm going to make sure the link to the show notes of your book is in there, The Teaching AI, Exploring New Frontiers for Learning. It's definitely a book people should check out, whether you're fascinated with AI or you're, you're, you're not sure. It's a great book to dive into at either point. Um, s- such a good read. It'll help you make sense of so much and just lots of practical stuff for the, for the educator. And uh, Michelle, this has been a wonderful conversation. Um, I'm so glad we finally were able to connect. If people, yes, thank you. People want to reach out and, and, and maybe follow up and or follow your journey or, or follow up with other questions, where are the, the, the best places for them to uh, find you? And I'll make sure I link it down in, in, in the show notes. Sure. My Twitter handle is at MRZPhD. And then I have a public teacher Facebook and then LinkedIn as well. Okay, perfect. So we will get those linked in down there in the show notes for those that want to reach out and, um, you know, just find out more what she, she's always got. Michelle, you've always got so many amazing things that you're sharing and doing. I think that's one of the, you're, you're another one of those amazing educators that's, that's helping keep the conversations alive and, and, and keeping these things, pushing our own thinking. And so I appreciate all that you do as well as all that you do for kids and their student voice. Um, we, we need more of that than ever before. And uh, thank you so much for your time. And thank you for everything you're doing for kids too. Hey, we all, we, we all do our part. It'll all turn out okay, right? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks.